0: Welcome to Technically Speaking with Bourjou and Wincy, a podcast about the evolving conversations in tech.
1: Technology is now making more and more decisions that affect our lives. But should it be?
0: Hi, I'm Wincy. I grew up in New York City, Manhattan, downtown in the Lower East Side. The 1970s. My parents, they're both immigrants not English-speaking, and they're surrounded by a lot of people who are very similar. They had housing in something we call the projects. In the UK, I believe you call it council estates. Most projects were a couple of buildings minimum, usually around four buildings, and the one that they were in was called Knickerbocker. It's over on Cherry Street, on the edge of Chinatown. This was not the... Manhattan that you see on, you know, really glamorous shows. This is a very gritty version of New York. There are gang fights every day across the street from where I grew up. A lot of drugs, a lot of the usual things you would expect from maybe rough neighborhoods. My mother had married my father at a young age, and she all of a sudden found herself with her first baby, which was my older sister, and realized that the apartment that they had in Knickerbocker just wasn't going to be good enough. There was no hot water. That was one thing that I remember. And then all of a sudden, we heard that they were going to build a new apartment complex right in the center of Chinatown. And it was going to be the biggest, the newest, most modern, and also the tallest building in that part of Manhattan, there was going to be regular running water, electricity, gas. My father actually said, "This sounds very expensive. They're never going to want to take people like us." But my mother wanted to fight for her family, for her new young family. So she went to the office, and they took one look at her and said, "I'm sorry, there's no space for you here." Luckily at the time we had a neighbor and she said, We were actually applying to get housing in the exact same apartment complex. I've actually had my brother, a bank manager at a local branch nearby, write me a recommendation letter. I'm sure he would be more than happy to meet you and do the same for you. The entire process changed from then on. It was incredible the power of having that letter, because in those days, Everyone in the neighborhood knew who the branch managers were, because those managers would make or break a lot of people's lives and businesses. They were the ones with the power. They would decide who would be able to get funding for their business or for their venture or just in general, a mortgage or a loan. In those days, a bank manager would not just look at a credit file and make a decision. They would look at you as a person. So... She was able to get the letter. And later on, she went back to the exact same office. And she said, I'd like to apply. And
1: now I actually have a letter of recommendation. And that completely changed everything. I mean, that story just would not happen now, right? Like the the first people to see your mother's application would be a computer, the computer would run a triage uh, against the system of specifications uh, created by some people in offices who have no idea who this individual is or whether or not to, to trust her. And that disconnect between a human and the machine is going to and it is driving further inequality and people like you wouldn't have been able to move out of the project In fact, what most
0: banks have done, most large banks have done over time, is that they've centralized the power. First, they moved it from the branches and the banks into telephony and call centers in order to triage queries and questions. Then from there, moved it onto online banking. And from there, all the way to the mobile app, which is what is our largest branch, for example, at our bank today. Most of our customers don't even step into a branch even once a year. There is a concern that with tech and progress, sometimes it still leaves a population behind.
1: So that's the million dollar question, right? How do you try and get all these unbanked people banked?
0: I think some of the more interesting innovations are happening abroad
1: in other countries. And their answer seems to have been not to use AI. The whole notion of setting up your system, of how you allow people to engage with your product, where you expect a certain number of criteria to be fulfilled. You expect to see a certain amount of history of them interacting with the economy, etc., to build a profile in your mind of what trust should look like. That is not what they're doing. They've almost taken a step back and their decision making is based on a variety of factors that do not have to rest on your track record. That's incredible. But how do they make those decisions? Day to day engagement with the outside world doesn't have to be, you know, I've gone to a bank and I've asked for a loan. It can also be I went to McDonald's today, as I've been doing every day for the last month, and I've purchased French fries. Absolutely. <laughs> the, you know, the interesting thing is that they've looked at how much money are you regularly spending, the fact that you're able to pay your bills on time. All of this gets considered when trying to decide whether or not you're worthy of being considered for a loan or a bank account. This is a great time to start bringing in someone who has
0: been working in this sector for quite a long time uh, to talk about what he's seeing. Right now, day to day, in our communities, and how his not-for-profit is currently looking at tackling some of these issues.
1: Faisal Rahman launched Fair Finance and in the last 15 years provided access to 50,000 loans totaling £35 million.
2: Tell us how you started. When I started trying to think about how to bring microfinance and start Fair Finance in the UK... Uh, most people told me that what I was really talking about was something that existed in other parts of the world. Microfinance is what you do in Africa in Bangladesh and India. It's not what you do in in East London, where I started. Uh, And so as try as I might and as convincing as I thought I was, I wasn't able to raise any money to do it. So I I started Fair Finance with a credit card. I took out a £20,000 overdraft on a credit card because I believed that I could take this money and bring it to people who didn't have it and get it back that everything that I had learnt about lending was that it was less about the numbers than it was about the people. And if you could understand people well and what they were wanting to do with their money, you could make sensible and clever decisions. And the people I was very interested in were the ones on the margins, the ones who didn't have a lot of information and a lot of data. So at the very early stages, much of my lending were to mainly people, mainly women on council estates in East London. be lending for anything from um, you know, training to be a driving instructor to starting a small bakery business to um, <clears throat> to even in one case buying a fax machine in order to set up a translation business so that they could uh, translate things from English to Bengali to for a local university so just about anything you could imagine uh, and what was really interesting about it is that if you gave people the opportunity to access small amounts of credit often they would try things that they had thought about but never really, but never really done because it was a bit too risky because going and talking to a bank was a bit too scary or engaging with financial services providers was a bit too confusing. So somebody in their community working with them was able to get people to take that first leap or entrepreneurial step into doing something that they were just interested in. And so the, the ideas were pretty broad and very varied.
1: What was an example of something
2: someone tried? There are kind of three strands of fair finance that I would kind of share with you one is we have a we have a kind of an advisory service that just helps people manage their debts and their finances. in many cases not lending to somebody is probably more important than lending to somebody um, and often we were lending we were giving advice to people who had just been borrowing from one institution to another institution to another institution and when they got to fair finance, thinking that they'd be able to borrow some more money, what they realized that they got was, a really sensible piece of advice that says, don't borrow. Here, let me help you manage those finances and think about your income and expenditure. So a lot of the work that we did was about convincing people they didn't need money, actually. They had plenty of money, and and it was about getting them to think about how they spent their cash. But then when you move into people who really did need finance, we we really kind of broke into two groups. Um, So some people who wanted to set up small businesses, entrepreneurial businesses, little businesses that required a few thousand pounds to take the the leap or the step. you know, it started off with very, very local businesses. I mean, one of the one of the kind of interesting things that, that we got invested in very early in Fair Finance was, I don't know if you know this, but um, driving instructors are predominantly male. I think the national average for female driving instructors when we did this work was around 3.5%. We started to work with a group of women in East London who were quite keen to become driving instructors because they realised that this is a fantastic job. It's, uh, it's really flexible. They can work in the mornings. They can work in the afternoons. They can, they can drop off their kids at school, manage childcare, do other things. What we realized is that to become a driving instructor, not only do you need the finance for the car, but you also need an insurance and that insurance costs five or six hundred pounds. And and these women had no access to credit. So we started lending to them five hundred pounds, six hundred pounds, seven hundred pounds, whatever the insurance was. Uh, and I can tell you that over the five, over the four or five years of doing that work, we shifted the national average from 3.5% women driving instructors to in Tower Hamlets. It went up to 11.2%. That's amazing. With a little small of an injection of capital, a strong network into the community and support for people to take that first step, you can do some pretty amazing things. And then there's the third strand of Fair Finance, which is really about uh, what we would call kind of consumer finance or affordable lending. Um, when we launched the business, about two or three million people were borrowing from a doorstep lender. Charging anything from 600 pounds, 600% upwards. Uh, uh, between one and two million people were borrowing from payday lenders charging uh, over a thousand percent. At that time, there was, there was no payday lending cap. And these were people who were borrowing often for school uniforms, sometimes a deposit on a flat, but occasionally they were just making up income flows because, um, you know, as you know, I know many people use their uh, overdraft facility to help them manage their expenditure patterns, or then, you know, if they need to fix a car or replace a washing machine or do something that requires more than a couple of hundred pounds, they need to borrow from somebody. And for what connects all of the groups that we work with in Fair Finance is that they have either no credit history, what's known as a thin credit file, or they have a bad credit history. So they've made a mistake in their past, or they've lived in a house where somebody's made a mistake and that mistake has tracked them.
0: Just because they lived with someone else who had a bad financial record, they've been tainted by that.
2: It's quite common for people who've lived in shared houses when they've been students or, you know, when they've been living with other groups of friends and such, to leave that house and the water bill or the utility bills in that house not get paid, the final one, not get paid. And often that tracks people. That's quite a common problem that people have found uh, that it can happen. And they could have lived in a house with somebody who just hasn't paid their bills.
0: Could you give us a picture on what your customers were like when you first started and what they're like now?
2: So when I launched Fair Finance, our primary customers would have been predominantly people on benefits, on low incomes. Um, and over time, we've seen that evolve and change. You know, within the first five years of Fair Finance, we, we then started to see an increasing number of people who came from Europe, different countries in Europe. And they often arrived, you know, they might have come, they would, they'd be skilled uh, migrants who'd arrived. They'd often had some assets with them, they were looking for jobs, they were in work, but they had no credit history here. They might have had credit history in Poland, Lithuania, Czech Republic, or Italy even, but a lot of that data doesn't get transferred over. And so what they were finding is that you know they'd gone from having access to finance to coming to a country in Europe where they had no access to the same levels of credit and I often found that a lot of the work at Fair Finance at that time was writing letters to their local bank branch managers to help them open bank accounts. I mean, so because of that thin credit file, they found that maybe they get a bank account, but but they definitely don't get overdraft. In the next five years, the UK went through a couple of recessions. We had the global financial crisis. We had various you know, banking changes where credit was denied increasingly to people who previously had access to it. And what we found is that suddenly we the people walking into Fair Finance's branches were they were surprised to walk into Fairfax Finance surprises, right? They had a Halifax account. They had a Lloyd's account. They had a TSB. You know, they, they've worked with RBS or they've had a Barclays account. And they, they suddenly found that their credit cards were being declined or their overdraft limits were being reduced. And so our model had to suddenly shift. We had to think about fintech solutions, technology, data. We had to think about service. We had to think about speed of engagement. It's much broader than you think. So, you know, it was only a, probably last month that we... You know, we made a loan to a guy, a top-rate taxpayer, who had six payday loans and an instalment loan. Every month, he was paying £4,000 in interest fees alone. So he had a decent amount of money, right? You know, but he fell ill at some point during the course of, it was about two years ago, he missed a mortgage payment. He tried to make it up. He couldn't. He needed to restructure his mortgage a little bit. He wasn't treated very well. I think he was still, you know, he, he couldn't get the deal that he needed from his bank. And he found that his uh, credit card provider reduced his credit card limits. His overdraft was reduced from 3,000 to 1,500 and then down to zero and then converted into a loan. And the truth is his income goes up and it goes down. So there's some months where he works uh, 20 days a month, some months where he works 18 and other months where he does overtime. So he does variable income. And so it was quite chronic for him to suddenly find his, his overdraft cut because that's what he used to balance his income every, every month. So he, he took out a payday loan and realized very quickly that when you take out a payday loan it's not just that you have to pay high interest you also have to pay the capital back at the end of the period. He was paying 4000 pounds in fees on 6 6000 pounds of loans. 4000 pounds a month in fees on 6000 pounds of finance, which is a phenomenal amount of interest to be charged. So it just gives you an idea this is not somebody who's you know didn't understand finance. This is not somebody who didn't know what they were doing. When he turned up at Fair Finance he had a spreadsheet that he'd already made on how he could manage his finances if he could get out of these extortionate costs that he was involved in. And I think that's the bit that I think the most about fair finance and technology, is that often what we're doing is that we have a very, very well-oiled system as long as you do everything right. As long as you make all the right decisions that everyone expects you to make, you make a bad decision in their eyes, and you're penalized. And I would say that the cost of being penalized is so much greater than it should be. And the people who are making decisions on that have made a value judgment that by, by you taking that loan, you're a worse risk. And I think that's the most dangerous thing.
0: It really wasn't that long ago that you'd go to see your local branch manager uh, at the bank. And now a lot of that power has been centralized with digital interfaces apps websites so i have two questions where have you seen technology support and help people on the margins or or those who are excluded and where do you think it has excluded them further
2: hmm. the increasing use of technology has allowed the the unit cost of products and services to be cheaper i mean that is just a fact for most for most people as long as your credit history is good and you've got clear data and you're all part of the system Actually, your ability to access zero interest, overdrafts, base rate linked mortgages, all of these things are driven by our technology making the individual unit cost of things much cheaper. And that's a fantastic thing. But the second area where I think it's been really, really helpful has been that as we've become more sophisticated about data, I think people are hungry to try and understand how we can get it right. I think many credit bureaus and banks have done a great job in looking at where alternative other sources of data could come in. So you now, for many people who rent properties, they might have paid their rent without missing a beat for 15 years, and yet that doesn't contribute to their credit profile. Why is that? Seems crazy, right? Yet yeah, here's a really good example of someone who's been paying their rent without fail for, for that kind of time. And, you know, many bureaus are now looking at how do you include rental data? That level of exclusion is being pulled down. But I think also what you see on the flip side, people often say that, you know, the uh, te- technology is a little bit of a reflection of who we are and what we want. You know, we, we see this when we talk a lot about uh, the development of AI and how it does increasing analytics, that you have to be very careful about the information that you put in. And I think a lot of the technology that's come into retail banking really, really reflects, I think, not necessarily the increase in customer engagement that people want, but it's really about reducing the costs for the institutions. And I think that that's often a factor in how many services have been pushed out and why in some cases it becomes easier to use extra data to increase your ability to exclude people. Right now, adding rental data or insurance data sounds great, but what it doesn't reflect is that people on low and moderate incomes have very, very non-standard income patterns. It goes up, it goes down. And so it isn't just necessarily having more data. It's understanding why that data is. That's a bit more nuanced and more interesting. In many cases, adding more information to how we make credit underwriting decisions invariably ends up excluding people from mainstream institutions because it's easier to take the same policies you had for the data you had previously and apply them to new data you get, compounding exclusion. There is quite a lot of local trust involved in local lending decisions and I guess that underpins what, what we think about at Fair Finance is that we've still got to replicate that level of trust in the way that we can help people like George, the guy who's got £4,000 of interest that he's paying a month, but it's quite a sophisticated user, wants to engage with a mobile app, we've got to find a way of getting them to trust us. Because if they don't trust us, they don't tell us the things that allow us to make the right decisions for them. And so when we think about technology, we don't drive the technology solutions in Fair Finance to reduce the unit cost of our service. We drive it to help us, allow us to spend more time with customers. So we know that many of our customers are relatively straightforward. With a few small questions that we could ask them, with a little bit of data and analytics, a little bit of improvement on how we engage with them, we can get the information to make a decision. That's probably about half our customers, but the other half, they need time. And so what we use our technology systems for, the mobile app that we've designed, the online application processes that we've got, the data gathering, the analytics, all of the systems that we put together are allow us to spend more time with the rest of the customers. And so every investment in technology is normally matched with an investment in customer service staff who are all trained, skilled, not just underwriters but I guess relational consultants who can engage with you and talk to you about your finances. Because probably the secret, I should not tell you, but that has underpinned a lot of fair finances, is that rich people default as well as poor people. The reason why they pay you is because they want to pay you. And for many people who come to Fair Finance, they've been treated badly by the institutions that they've engaged with, either because of cost or because of service. And they think it's okay not to pay them because these guys have treated them badly. And it's really, really hard to recover a debt from someone who doesn't have any assets. And so you've got to make them want to do it. Now, you can do that with a big stick and a Rottweiler and a baseball bat, uh, or you could do it by threatening them and sending um, threatening letters to them. Or you can find a way to get them to trust you and realise that you're on their side. And so a lot of what Fair Finances does and a lot of what the technology does is allow us to build that relationship to say, when you're in trouble, we're here to help. And And this is about you being able to speak to somebody at any point.
0: So that's really interesting. In order to build that trust with those customers, you need to spend a lot of time with it. That's really labor-intensive. Is there commercial viability in building a business with that as its base, and also be able to offer fair and competitive rates?
2: So, one thing I should probably have said about Fair Finance is that although we have a we are a, a kind of a, a non-profit entity, we're not a charity. Um, so so Fair Finance is backed by a, a range of social investors, which include individual angel investors, uh, certain institutions and foundations, and also part of NatWest, Social and Sustainable Capital. And they want to see their money do well, but they don't want their money to lose value. And they believe, as well as I do, that there is a business model around lending responsibly and uh, treating customers fairly and doing so in a sensible way. So in the 15 years of Fair Finance, we have raised successive rounds of investment from individuals and institutions who want to see their money do well. We've then been able to work with banks. So we work with a number of mainstream banks to borrow money on commercial terms. So Fair Finance is a commercial entity, but we don't lose money. We've been viable and growing uh, every year uh, in a in a measured and meaningful way. The challenge, I think, for institutions like ours is that If I told somebody I'm running a business, uh, if I told my bank manager I was running a business that didn't maximize profits, I think they would struggle to figure out how I would validate the ability to repay a loan. So Fair Finance in its early years was as financially excluded as the customers it was serving. And it was one of those kind of weird chicken and egg situations, which is we knew the business model worked and people kind of conceptually got it but they had no data to prove it. But you couldn't get the data to prove it until somebody had done it. And so it was the classic entrepreneurial challenge of you want to change the market, you want to change the system, Someone's going to take a risk. And so those early stage risk takers were part of a movement of social investors who were funding innovation in the United Kingdom. And I think that's a market that's growing. So increasingly, people want to see their, their pension parts, their assets, they want to see them doing good because we all know that the world isn't perfect it's not right the market's broken systems aren't being driven in the way that we want them to be driven they're being focused on returns rather than impact and increasingly people want their money and their long-term money to be doing well and so i think there's an opportunity here that we didn't have at Fair Finance before to access and engage with people who want to see their money not disappear like a grant but to make positive changes in society and i think it's incumbent on people like me and others who want to see that work to do so sustainably uh, and to do so at scale and to show that not only is it a good thing to do, but it's better than the people who are out there. And that's the core principle behind Fair Finance. We have lower defaults, higher retention, faster growth and better customer engagement and better outcomes for people. And we give the money back to the people who invest in us.
1: Can you see that you would ever need to adopt AI or machine learning given that every decision that you make is so
2: personal? So maybe I I, I take a step and tell you, what I think about the way finance is moving in the United Kingdom and probably around the world is that so much of technology is being used to disintermediate the relationship between the customer and the institution. It's to create platforms to speed up the process, to take the institution out of it almost, right? And I think that's great. That works really well for people who understand and can navigate that. But what I'm trying to do in Fair Finance is I've realised that it isn't disintermediation that people are after. It's reintermediation. And in a sense, what I'm really creating is a re-engagement with people and trying to find the best way to do that, where the driver is the engagement as opposed to the system. The driver is the people as opposed to the platform. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't have behind the scenes systems and platforms and machine learning and AI and smart decision making to improve our decision making process to support the conversations that we have but it isn't the driver. It isn't the fundamental thing that sits at the front where we invest all of our all of our time and energy.
1: So you're not using tech to triage customers. You're using it as a supplement.
2: And that's, that's the right way to think about it. We're trying to find a way to say the whole of the industry is moving in one direction and maybe we'll all get there, but we're not there. And it's going to take some time. There is an increasing rump of the population which existed before and are increasingly being added to who need something different.
0: I heard that you have a great story of where tech has made an unusual decision.
2: Yeah, so um, probably the most unusual story was, was actually a, a customer who came into Fair Finance, who was an existing customer of Fair Finance, and just kind of wanted to share something with us. And they had this card, they had this letter. It was a letter with a, like a Visa card on it, and I won't tell you the bank, but basically it was a Visa card from a bank. And it was a letter addressed to Missy, and it was at this customer's address. And I kind of, and I know the name of the customer. I was like, well, your name's not Missy. What's this? He goes, this is my dog. I said, you what? My dog has received a credit card and not just any credit card, a platinum credit card. I said, what? Because my dog has received platinum credit card. I was like, wait a minute. Wait, wait, wait. This is a person who'd come to fair finance because they had a basic bank account, couldn't get access to credit, didn't have an overdraft have never used a credit card in their lives. You know, this was someone who lived mostly in the cash economy, and we had helped them with a small loan to to basically buy some school uniforms. For, to buy some school uniforms for her kids, right? It, she's she's like our core cool fair finance customer, and in her household, the only person who's accessing finance is her dog, her Labra Poodle, Really, is the only person in the house getting access to it. And so I did a bit of digging on this. And, uh, you know, I, I'm going to be the first to admit that I suspect the systems have changed a bit. But when I did this, this was like 10 years ago now, when I did the digging on this, I, what I found was that her daughter, as a bit of a joke, kind of registered lots of things in their dog's name when they had got their pet insurance and various other bits and pieces that they had bought. And, um, you know, they, they'd obviously put in in enough places that her dog had a digital footprint not just had a digital footprint, but as these credit bureaus started adding more data from insurance firms and other such, it was the dog's name that was suddenly being marketed and targeted from all of the sophisticated marketing systems that they've got. And so when one of these companies must have done a scan of Missy's credit profile and thought, ah, ah, a high-spending entity that doesn't... Well, no, a high-spending entity that just seems to be able to afford everything that they're buying. (laughs) They send them a credit card. There
0: you have it. Labradoodles doodles are very, very popular at the moment. So <laughs> they've got a trustworthy face.
1: <laughs> I think Faisal makes a really strong case for the use of AI alongside human decision making, and it gives people the space to do what they're good at. And I guess the question that comes out of all this, for me at least, is: Have we? replaced too much of that decision making with computers? And do we need to take a step back at this point and reassess whether certain things are better done by humans again? In the next episode of Technically Speaking, we ask, who's the boss? Is it the AI or the execs?